You know that uh, our theme this year at our church is, why does it matter? And we are addressing that question from various perspectives throughout the year, and we're looking at different facets of that question. And so as Aaron said, we're beginning our summer series, and so for the summer, our theme is going to be eternity. Why does it matter? And we're going to spend June and July in this conversation about eternity. And we mentioned this to you last Sunday, but just may not have been here last week. We want to remind you that position in various places across our campus are these signs. We want you to get one, the John 3.16 sign. And what we'd like for you to do, as I think I instructed you last week, but again, you may not have been here, let me just remind you, we want you, wherever you go this summer, doesn't necessarily have to be on vacation, just wherever you may be here in Arlington, we'd love for you to take the sign and get your photo made, and, uh, and then we want you to send it in to fbca.org slash John 316. Remember, we don't use the colon in that tagline, because if you put that in the internet address, that messes everything up, so don't do that, okay? Um, so, um, and there are also, if you go to that landing page, there's some instructions for you, because we'd love for you to have some other people take your photo, so maybe they'll ask you, why are you taking a photo of John 3.16? You'll be surprised, I think, before the summer's over, how many people aren't even sure what that is. A few years ago, I read a story about a pastor who was at a professional basketball game, and he was seated in the end zone, we would call it, you know, underneath the basket. And it was in Chicago, and right across from them in the other end zone, there was a guy holding up a John 3.16 sign. And this pastor says behind him, there were two well-dressed young adults, and one of the guys said, wonder what that means, John 3, colon, 16. The other guy said, well, it's gotta be some kind of message, I'm sure, for somebody named John. And uh, maybe he's trying to tell him he's in room 316, or maybe we need to meet at 316. Maybe it's his name of a restaurant. And he said, he just sat there and listened to these two grown men have a conversation about what in the world could this possibly be. And finally, he said he couldn't help himself. He turned around and said, it's a Bible verse. He said, but I was so frustrated when I said it, I think I messed up the whole message of what John 316 is. So... Don't, don't do that, okay? Um, but we would love for it to be perhaps an opportunity for you to flex your uh, apologetics muscles a little bit and exercise some evangelistic skills in sharing with people what this really means. And so we'll have some fun with it and uh, we'll love to see by the end of the summer where you all went uh, when you had these photos made. So we'll, we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll have a way to promote all that for you to get to see it all. And this summer, we're going to talk about eternity. Um, I'm going to be preaching this series in June. I'll be out in July. In July, you'll be hearing from Kurt Grice and Gary Stidham um, and Connor Toyalba and Katie Hodges and uh, Luke Stair. They'll be preaching for us. And I've assigned them their topics and texts and given them kind of a guide for what we're going to try to accomplish this summer. Uh, I'm going to be preaching sermons on heaven, on hell. I'm preaching one on hell next week. I started to title the sermon next week, Heaven, Yes, Hell, No. But <laughs> I, I don't have enough courage to do it, so it's not going to have that, okay? But uh, 
But I am going to preach a sermon on hell next week because I think we just don't talk much about hell. And the Bible has a lot to say about it. And then I'm going to preach a sermon on heaven. Um, same thing. Bible has much to say about heaven. We, I think we have some misconceptions about heaven. So I want to talk about that. And we'll talk about John 3.16. And, uh, and then we have various facets of eternity that will be addressing all through the summer. Okay? So here's what I want to do this morning. This morning, I want to ask you to, to put your thinking hats on. Okay? And I want to have a, somewhat of a theological, philosophical reflection with you this morning. And so um, I want you to think with me about the topic of eternity. And so we're going to begin today with a, a message from the book of Ecclesiastes. Now you remember last summer in July, uh, we went through this, the book of Ecclesiastes, y'all may remember that, or really June and July, and so I'm going to ask you to read through the whole book of Ecclesiastes in our initial daily Bible readings here this summer. Actually started last Thursday. And today I want us to look at Ecclesiastes 3, and I've entitled the message, Does Anybody Really Know What Time It Is? Um, you know, when you think about time, eternity is a subset of the conversation about time and I want you to think with me about that this morning. Because, you know, when it comes to time, we have an interesting relationship with it. We may not think about it much, but we should. Because we mark time, we make time, we run out of time, we tell time, we waste time, we lose time. We save time. Um, and so if I were to ask you the question, what time is it? Well, that's, that's actually a difficult question to answer. In some ways, it almost depends on who you ask. What time is it? What day is it? What year is it? You know, if, if I were just to ask the typical American, what's today's date? They would tell me today is June 4th, 2023. Now, how did they come up with that? Well, actually, if you go all the way back to AD 500 or so, there was a medieval monk living in Rome named Dionysius Exiguus. And one of the assignments he had was to translate all of these Greek documents into Latin for the church. And so over a thousand documents he translated from Greek to Latin. But his main assignment was to help the church set the date of Easter for all the years ahead. And the challenge that Dionysius Exiguus had was, at the time, they were dating Easter based upon a calendar that bore the name of the Roman emperor Diocletian. And Diocletian was an emperor who persecuted Christianity. And so Dionysius said, we should not be dating Easter using any calculation from the hated Roman emperor Diocletian. We ought to come up with a different way to do it. 
So he did. He offered the Pope or the pastor there in Rome a different pathway for calculating Easter. And as he did that, he went both backwards and forwards. And based upon his calculations, he then said, we need to number this system Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And so he created this system of what we now know as A.D. and B.C., before Christ and in the year of our Lord. And so the dating system is, whenever you use that dating system, if it's B.C., you use the number first and then B.C., how many ever years before Christ? If you're talking about in the year of our Lord, you use A.D. first. So this will be A.D. 2023. Pretty ingenious and it was actually adopted by the church, and it became official. You and I still use it, 2023, and it's based upon the birth of Jesus. So according to this calculation, we are 2,023 years beyond the birth of Jesus. And it, it really is a, an incredible way to mark time, and it's fascinating how the world quickly adopted it. The, the challenge is, Dionysius exiguous, at the time, you know, he didn't have the internet or Wikipedia or all of that. And turns out, based upon what we know now, he's about four years off, based upon what we know about King Herod and about Pontius Pilate and some other dates that we've been able to solidify. So it turns out Jesus, as best we can tell, was born four years before Christ. So, <laughs> kind of messes it up just a little bit, but... To be honest with you, nobody's decided to correct it, so we just go with it, okay? So, it is what it is. Well, not only that, not only we try to figure out what year it is, um, not everybody agrees with us about that. If you were to ask the Jews today, they would tell you this is the year 5,783. They use a different calculation. If you were to ask um, a Muslim what year it is, the Muslim would tell you it's the year 1444. And so, and then not only that, if you ask somebody what time it is, it depends on where they happen to be on planet Earth at that particular time because there was a, a Canadian guy who decided that we needed to divide the world into these 24 time zones. His name is Sir Stanford Fleming. He actually worked for the Canadian rail system and one of the problems they were having was nobody knew when the railroad was going to run. And so he calculated that the earth moves 15 degrees every hour, so we ought to have time zones marked every 15 degrees longitude and change your time by an hour each time you crossed over one of those longitudinal lines. And so then the world began to reckon its time a little bit differently. But then the question is, okay, if you know where you are, who's in charge of the clock? And who's in charge of where those lines are drawn? Because some of those lines cut across state lines in America. They cut across countries across the world. And the question is, how do you do that? Well, in America, we've given that to the Department of Transportation. They're in charge of the time zones to make sure that we keep them wherever they're supposed to be because they're in charge of the transportation across our country. So they're the ones that tell you when you enter the eastern time zone, when you enter the central time zone, et cetera, et cetera. And then the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. has the master clock. So if you want to know what time it is, you have to ask the Navy. 
Some of y'all will appreciate that in this room. Some of you may not. So, let me ask the question again. Does anybody really know what time it is? Well, it just depends on who you ask. Now, most Baptists on Sunday morning can tell you exactly what time it is based on what's going on in church because they know when church is supposed to end. So, <laughs> but with that said, let's look at Ecclesiastes 3 because the writer of Ecclesiastes, was it Solomon? Many think so. You remember last year I, I asked y'all to kind of adopt the, the view that the, this, this guy's like a tour guide and he's taking you through reality. And here's what he's going to do on page three. He wants to help you think about answering that question. What time is it? But he's going to use a different reckoning method, okay? So let's look at what he says, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1. There's a time for everything, and there's a season for every activity under the heavens. There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? From, from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. See, the writer of Ecclesiastes wants to help you understand time. So with that said, this morning I want us to think about eternity. Now, I love etymology. I like to study the history of words because words have meaning. And if words didn't have meaning, we couldn't have a conversation, right? So there are agreed upon meanings of words. So I love vocabulary tests. I always loved vocabulary tests. So at camp this year, at children's camp, we have been learning about the meaning of grace. We're teaching the children what that word really means. But we have given the children vocabulary tests, okay? I wanna give you a sample of what we've done. Do you know that every year, the dictionary, Merriam-Webster, dictionary.com, y'all know they add new words every year to the dictionary based upon what's happening in American culture. I'm gonna give you some new words and see if you know the definition. Okay, these are actually in the dictionary now. Here's the first one. See if you know what this word means. Dumb phone. <clears throat> Y'all know what a dumb phone is? Okay, a landline. That's a good guess. Not one kid at camp said that. <laughs> Let's take that in for a second, okay? 
Here's what's interesting. Let me show you what the definition is, the dictionary definition. It is a cell phone that does not include advanced software features, such as email or internet browser, typically found on smartphones. In other words, it's just a phone. <laughs> interesting. Do you know what's fascinating? Do you know the dumb phones are on the rise? Several hundred million of them were sold last year. People are buying phones that have no internet access, no apps, those kind of things, okay? How about this next one? Um, let's put it up there. Adorkable. <laughs> Anybody got a guess? Adorkable. Aaron, you can't do it because you were there last night. They're dorky and cute. Is that what somebody said? So dorky, they're cute. Oh my goodness, look at this. Here we go. Socially awkward or quirky in a way that is endearing. There you go. Okay. Give that woman a prize. Good job. Okay. Um, okay. How about this one? This one's a little tricky. Okay. Truthiness. What do you think that word means? Anybody guess? Truthiness. Well, let me show you. It is a seemingly truthful quality not supported by facts or evidence. In other words, it sounds like it's true, it's just not true. I want him to comment on that, how that's going in our world. Um, here's a good one. See if you know this one. Phonesia. Can't find your phone. That's a great guess. <clears throat> I'm not even going to comment on the people in my family that have that. Um, actually, let me tell you what that word means. It is the act of dialing a phone number and forgetting who you were calling just as the person answers. <laughs> it's never happened to any of y'all, I know that. <laughs> okay, one more. <clears throat> Cakeism. This is one of my favorite ones. Cakeism. What do y'all think that means? You love cake? Okay. Well, let's look. Here's what it means. The false belief that one can enjoy the benefits of two choices that are in fact mutually exclusive or have it both ways. In other words, you can't have your cake and eat it too. That's right, that's cakeism. Okay, all right, good job, y'all. Um, so we're doing that every day with the children. We've had some fun with them. I've got some really good ones for tonight, so I'm looking forward to it. Um, so go back to my question. What about eternity? Why does it matter? Maybe I could ask the question this morning, what does it even mean? Do we even believe in it anymore? I mean, do we really actually believe in eternity? Do, do we really believe that there's more than just this world? There's really more than what we see. I want you to look at this text. Look back, if you still got your Bibles, I'm looking at Ecclesiastes 3, look at verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 11. The text says he's made everything beautiful in its time, he's made everything appropriate, in other words, in its time. But then it says, he set eternity in our hearts. So God has put something in us, eternity. Something for us to reckon with. Something for us to grapple with. Something for us to think about. Something for us to experience the reality of it. But I would tell you, and I think many people today might not really believe in it. So when we think about Apologetics, being able to address issues and share our faith and articulate them, articulate our faith and do it in a way that's compelling and appealing. It, 
it feels to me like one of the things that needs to happen is we need to know what time it is. We need to know what our culture's facing. We need to be honest about what people around us really believe so that we can most effectively share the gospel with them. And so I want you to put your thinking hats on with me this morning to set the stage for this entire summer conversation. Because I want to give you a couple of vocabulary words that I want you just to hang on to as we go through this summer. So let's start with the first one. Imminent frame or transcendence. Let me read your quote from Josh Chatraw in Mark Allen's book, Apologetics of the Cross. Charles Taylor, he's a, 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 a Roman Catholic philosopher. He uses the term imminent frame to refer to how in the current cultural context, people view everything in terms of a natural rather than a supernatural order. The modern social imagination, which is deeply embedded in much of our culture, works from the assumption that while people can find significance or meaning in life, eminence, in other words, what we see and experience here, there's no higher divinely given purpose that's been assigned to them, transcendence. In, in, in other words, here's what Charles Taylor is saying in his book, The Secular Age. Here's what Chatraw and uh, Allen are pointing out. Our culture has a frame of reference. It's the lens through which they focus all of reality. And here's the argument of Charles Taylor. Chatraw and, and, um, and Allen agree with it. If you look at the history of humanity, for almost all of human history, human beings have believed, if you can imagine it like this, that we live in a two-story home the second story is eternity. It's the transcendent reality. It is actually where we're going to live the longest. It's, it's actually what calls us forward. And we all acknowledge it's real. It's supernatural. It transcends anything that we are able to experience here on earth. Historically, human beings have believed that that's the second story. The first story is what's happening right here on earth. It's what's imminent what we can see and taste and feel and experience. And so historically, human beings, even pagans, not just Jews and Christians, even pagans, believe that there's some kind of transcendent reality, there's some kind of real spiritual world that's beyond this one. Here's what Charles Taylor says. It's what these two guys point out. Here's what's happening in the current American context. Many Americans today no longer believe that we live in a two-story home, we just live in a one-story home. And this right here is really all there is. Does that make sense? That's the imminent frame. In other words, they frame everything around it. So in other words, if this world's all there is, then you need to go for whatever you can get in this world. And if there is really no transcendent reality, it doesn't matter how you get it. Does that make sense? In other words, you suspend deep, absolute truth. You, just, you suspend moral integrity, if you will. But here's the mistake, though, that some people make. Even though we acknowledge that, and I would tell you, I believe that Taylor is right. I think that the majority of our culture is bending in that direction, living as if this world is all there is. Remember how I shared with y'all last Sunday that whenever you tell someone my thoughts and prayers are with you, it makes many people mad because they don't believe there's any transcendent reality. In other words, they don't believe God's actually involved 
in this imminent world. And so it's insulting to just say, well, I'm going to pray for you. Whereas you and I as Christians, when we say, I'm going to pray for you, that's comforting and it means something because we believe God's actually going to respond to our prayers. Okay? But our culture doesn't see that. Here's the mistake we make, though. We, we make the mistake that that means our culture has no belief system. Well, that's not true. Tim Keller, who just recently died, established the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. Here's what Tim Keller says about the secular age. That's another vocabulary word. I want you to, or vocabulary phrase. So imminent frame is one, transcendence. Secular age, here's what Keller says. Secularity is not simply an absence of belief. Christians often accept this claim and respond by getting their proofs and other rational bona fides. Not so fast. Secularism is its own web of beliefs that should be open to examination. In other words, just because people, many people in America are not religious, you know, sometimes now we call them nuns. Y'all familiar with that? Not N-U-N-S. I'm talking about N-O-N-E-S. They're nuns. They have no religion. They still have a belief system, though. It's secular, but there are deeply held beliefs. And they hold on to those beliefs and they practice them. And there are certain values to them that are, that are golden. For instance, right now in our culture, tolerance is a value. We're supposed to tolerate everything, everybody, unless it's something you really disagree with and then people become very intolerant towards you. It's a fascinating thing. Let me give you one other. Are y'all still with me? Okay, I know it's a lot to think about. We're, we're gonna be talking about this for a while. And so you may have to go back and watch this sermon, okay, to rethink all this, okay? And that wouldn't hurt you anyway, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> late modernism. Here's what, sometimes people say, well, what, where are we as a culture? Some people say, well, we're in the postmodern era. I, I, don't, I used to believe that, but I don't believe that anymore. We're still in modernism because at the very heart of modernism is an attention to self, so here's what I would say about late modernism. That's the era that we're living in, I believe. The self is still at the center of our cultural reality. The autonomy of the individual and personal freedom are both core values of our culture. There's a distrust in traditional authority and a belief that expression of personal desires is a right of everyone. One of the core values of our society is I've got personal freedom and I don't have to respond to authority. I can do whatever I want to do. Skepticism concerning absolute truths and a sense of hopelessness, hopelessness pervade our culture right now. Many people in our culture do not believe in absolute truth. In fact, some of them will say there's no such thing as absolute truth. And that is an absolute truth statement. It's fascinating to me. You're stating something to me absolutely that you don't believe in. <laughs> absolute truth. Again, you may have to think about that. So, here's the question. How are Christians supposed to view time? And if you were to ask us, what time is it? How do we answer that question? When we're living in this era, every generation of Christians has had to deal with this. I mean, if you'd, if you'd have gone to visit Paul in Rome, in jail, in AD 60, and said to Paul, Paul, what, what time is it? I wonder how Paul would answer that question. If, if, if you were to go visit Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he's watching Nazism on the rise in Germany and he's trying to pastor a church and he's seeing this whole thing begin to boil out of control and ask him, uh, Dietrich, what, 
what time do you think it is? If, if you were to go and visit Sidney Alstrom, who was a, was a religious historian at Yale, and he was writing the history of Christianity in 1968, and he was watching the 60s unfold in front of him, and he had just witnessed uh, John Kennedy being assassinated, and he had seen Robert Kennedy be assassinated, and he had seen Martin Luther King be assassinated, and he was watching the fires all across the major cities in America, and all the protests on the Vietnam War, and he saw protests on his own campus. If you were to ask Sidney Alstrom, who was this great scholar in 1968, what time do you think it is? You know, he wrote a book called The Religious History of the American People. He has a section in his book called The Death of Christendom. Isn't that interesting? The Death of Christendom. Wonder why he thought that. Well, what, what do you think he was thinking? He's just watching. So if you ask a Christian, do different eras in the history of the world, what time is it? Well, the answer to that is it depends. It really does depend. It depends on your perspective. You know, Jesus talked about that. He, he chided the Pharisees. Let, let, let me remind you of that. Um, in Matthew 16, Matthew says this, verse one of Matthew 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. In other words, they said, okay, you say you've come from heaven, prove it. He replied, when evening comes, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it'll be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. Jesus said, in other words, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the ages, the great plan of God is embodied right now in your presence and you don't even know it. Now you can tell me whether or not it's gonna rain tomorrow. You can tell me whether or not you ought to set sail next week, but here you are a religious leader and you have no idea what time it is and what God is doing. So for Christians, it's important for us to know the seasons and to have the right perspective on time. The writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to help us. The writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, look, you're going to have to deal with time and seasons because whether you like it or not, you're going to have different times in your life. Some are going to be good and some are going to be bad. And you need to know it. I don't need to sugarcoat this for you. Remember, he's, he's driving people on a bus. He said, oh, while I've got you on the bus, just let me remind y'all, you're going to go through some good days. You're going to go through some hard days. You're going to go through some days where you can delight in what God's doing. You're going to go through some days where you'll be disquieted in your soul. You need to be ready for that. You know, there's a time to plant. There's a time to harvest. There's a time to be awake. There's a time to be asleep. There's a time to fight. There's a time to be at peace. There's a time to speak up. There's a time to be quiet. There's a time to hurt. There's a time to heal. In other words, y'all, many of y'all in this room, you've lived long enough. You already know that, right? You know, one scholar says this, time is like your parent. It just won't stay out of your business. <laughs> time is what it is. And so you and I, we've got to have the right view of time. Know what time it is. Okay, so this is just the beginning of our conversation, okay? I'm not gonna answer it all definitively. Can I just run through this real quickly, though? Here's what I would say about us in time. First of all, history. As Christians, we have a providential view of history. So if you ask a Christian to look behind us, if you ask a Christian, what, what has happened in this world? What we say is, well, we believe in what's called the providential view of history, that means we believe that our God has been at work all through time. We believe you can trace his hand all through time. 
History is not just a series of unrelated events. History is actually a journey, and history is a part of a story, and God himself is in charge. The Bible says in Galatians 4, verse 4, when the time was full, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. In other words, when did Jesus come? When the time was just right. What does the writer of Ecclesiastes say? He makes everything beautiful in its time. God is never late. He's always on time. Now, he's not on your time schedule, <laughs> but he's never late. He's always right on time. God understands time, and history is the chronicling of his work in time. What about the present? Well, in the present, as Christians, we live in the reality of both measured time and meaningful time. That's the difference between chronos, which is measured time, it's this kind of time, and kairos, which is the time is right, the time is full. And as Christians, we're supposed to know both. It's okay to know what time it is, absolutely. We have a reality, we have to measure it. But we're also supposed to be paying attention to what God is doing, what's meaningful right now, what season are we in? What is the Lord doing during this particular season? And let's look for him at work. Let's see why he's doing that. You know, why, why is the Lord working in this way? That's why many of us, as we've been praying for revival, praying for God to speak, praying for God to intervene, praying for God to arrest some things that look like they're out of control, praying for God to speak to people who are willing to hear. Many people are praying those kinds of prayers, and all of a sudden, we get this word that at Asbury College over in Kentucky, there's a group of kids that are having this massive revival, and all of a sudden, our ears perk up because those kinds of things are answers to our prayers. God is at work in this time. So we're looking for meaningful experiences with God. Whatever season you find yourself in, we've also got to acknowledge we're in a season as a church. We're in a season as a culture. We're in a season as a church with a big C. We're trying to make sure we live into it well. There may have been a time that we did something this way and it worked then, but it may be now time to change our methods so that it'll work now in this time. And we look for those meaningful expressions as Christians rather than being overwhelmed by them. We decide to live into them and seize the day, as they say. Well, what about the future? Well, here's what Christians do. We embrace the view that, that time is in God's hands. See, that's the eschaton in Greek, the end times. They're in God's hands. What did Jesus say? Don't worry about the times and seasons. That's, that's something God's going to decide. You live in this time. You live in this season. The future's in God's hands, and I trust him. I trust him in the future, don't you? You know, I like to read about it and think about it, contemplate it, look in the scripture, see what the Bible says, give me hints about how I live in this time, but I don't worry about the future. I don't. And I don't have to be right about it. I have my view about how it's all going to work, but do you know when it's all said and done, if God chooses to do it differently, do you think I'm gonna argue with him? You know, Lord, actually, I've been a covenant premillennialist this whole time. I can't believe you're doing this this way. I mean, Surely you, you know that, that me and other competent scholars have looked at the text and this is what we believe is supposed to happen and I'm, not, I'm just shocked that you're doing it this. Do you think that's how it's gonna be? No. I'm just telling you what I see best I know, but here's what I believe in my heart. The future's in God's hands. Aren't you glad? The past has already been in his hands and he prepared this world for everything that he wanted to happen. What do you think he's doing right now? Do you think God's asleep at the wheel? Do you think he just wound the clock up and just letting it go? Of course not. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
I promise you God Almighty is on duty 24-7. And he's not consulting anybody for advice or counsel. He's not waiting on some magical discovery. That's not who God is. God is not wondering what's gonna happen with the stock market and what's Bill Gates' next move and my goodness, who's gonna be the next president? Do you think God has to be consulted on any of that? He's God Almighty. Future's in his hands. So with that said, here's the real sermon. So we finally, we finally got here. Here it is. <clears throat> Thank you for being patient. Eternity. We accept the truth that God is eternal and he has designed us for eternity and his eternal purposes are at work today. That's really the gist of this conversation going forward. Okay? We believe that God's eternal. We also believe God has created us in his image and he's put eternity in us. We've been designed for eternity and God's eternal purposes are not on hold. They're already at work. They're already at play. And so here's our responsibility. You and I are designed for eternity. We live in the now, in this present age, but we know the age to come has already been established by Jesus. So we're living in the age to come already. We're a colony of heaven as Christians on this earth, already preparing ourselves and this world for the age to come, to demonstrate the reality of eternal purposes already in existence. We are bringing God's kingdom, that's what we're doing. We pray that God's will will be done on earth just like it's done in heaven. That's what the kingdom of God is. So you and I are already living in eternity. So we have an eternal perspective. God's at work right now. You're already connected. And so when you engage in eternal matters and you participate in eternal purposes, you're already preparing yourself for eternity. And God has given you an eternal perspective. That way you can manage the good days and the bad days as a Christian. You can see the bad days as temporary. You lost this. It's terrible. It's awful. It's grievous. And we've got to come to grips with it. But this world is not all there is. This season in your life has changed and you're no longer able to do X, Y, and Z. But you know what? That's temporary. You know why? Because this world is not all there is. I have this celebration right now, but my celebration is a little bit tempered by the fact that as much as I love it, as much joy as I have, I know it's not going to last until I finally get to eternity. In other words, eternal perspective, it gives me balance, it gives me symmetry, it gives me depth in order to manage my life in this world. And I live according to it. And so what I would say to me and you, if you ask me, what time is it? Well, what I'd say is, well, I'll tell you what time it is. It's the present age, but the age to come has already begun, and I hope you know it, and I hope you realize you were built for it, and you are actually going to live forever, and what God is doing is going to last forever, and we'll experience the beauty and the majesty of eternity, but we don't have to wait until we die. You can have a touch of that and be connected to it right now if you'll submit yourself to him and his eternal purposes for your life and for his kingdom. So with that said, that's just the start. So I'm gonna finish today with to be continued. Is that okay? And we'll keep this conversation going this summer. So let's pray together. <clears throat> well, Lord, we do, we do love you and we're grateful for just how you've created this world, how you've created us, designed us, placed within us an understanding, a connection to a glimpse of eternity, and we're grateful for it. 
And Lord, I just pray that, um, that we'll be mindful of eternal things, eternal perspective as we live our lives every day. And I pray that'll give comfort and strength and guidance to your people. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.